think a little bit about what's happening every single time you rescue your kid. You're reinforcing their inability to feel frustrated. You're saving them from those feelings of frustration and not sort of tempering that emotion, letting them feel it and sort of be comfortable with it. And you're actually undermining their ability to learn in the long run. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey, we're going to dive in here in just a minute to a cool episode with Jessica Leahy, but I wanted to chat with you first. So first of all, thank you to my Patreon patrons. I had a really fun Zoom call with some of you last week, and of course it was fun and fabulous, and that stuff just lights me up. So I'm going to start doing that monthly. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Patreon and search On Air with Ella, or just look in the show notes. And if you are one of the handful of people that took two minutes to leave a review for the show in Apple Podcasts recently, this is a big, fat, virtual smooch. I'm talking to Dr. Janet E., I'm talking to Maggie D., and Kelly C., and Joy P., thank you for rhyming, Deanna, Arlie K., Lindsay, and H-R-I-L-E, H-R-I-L-E <laughs> codename H-R-I-L-E. And that's just in the U.S. I will get to the other countries in a future show. Thank you, thank you for the feedback and for taking the time. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks for indulging me. Now on to today's topic. I don't do a lot of shows on the topic of parenting for lots of reasons. Namely, I think that there is plenty of amazing content out there from people who have a lot more to say than I do. I have, however, done an interview with both of my kiddos, both the one that I gave birth to, and that's episode 85. He was 15 at the time. He's 20 now. And the daughter that I was blessed with who came into my life as a teenager, and that is episode 207. But today's show, like most others, is not really limited to people who find themselves parenting right now. Are you a mom or dad? Great. You're definitely going to get something from this, but did you have a mom or a dad? Because if so, I think you'll find some interesting nuggets or thought starters here. We are talking about the tension between wanting to be really good parents, really present parents, involved in our children's lives, but balancing that against the need to grow autonomous, independent human beings who can forge their way in the world. But if you're not currently a caretaker of any sort, I want you to consider how some of the principles that we talk about apply in other relationships. Where are you fostering dependence and where are you fostering independence? Where are you comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, for the greater good? Or where are you falling back on behaviors that feel better in the moment? At the end of the day, I'm a big fan of personal accountability in relationships too, and I wanted to invite every single one of you into this interesting conversation with Jessica Leahy. Here we go. Hey, you're on air with Ella, and today I'm joined by author Jessica Leahy. Jessica, I would like to leave it to you though to tell everyone who you are and what you do. 
I'm so grateful because I hate the canned bios too. No one wants to hear it. (laughs) No. So I, um, for the most part, I've been a teacher for about 20 years and was, have taught in every grade from six to 12 and started writing about education while I was doing that in the way most teachers do in the form of a teacher blog, which sounds goofy, but actually is really useful to other teachers. And then it just sort of caught on. And next thing I knew, I was writing for the Atlantic and had a column in the New York Times called the Parent Teacher Conference and have been able to just do some of the coolest stuff. Um, since then. So I'm just, I've got the coolest job in the world, basically. Well, my first observation about you is that you are, let's see if I get the trifecta correct. Mother, yep. teacher, yep. writer. Mm-hmm. Those are the three hardest jobs in the world, possibly in order. And the reason we're talking today is because I read your book, The Gift of Failure, and I... <laughs> I actually have a bone to pick with you, Jess, Okay, because I like to read every single word written by anyone Mm -hmm. that I interview, which is not always the case. Some people don't know that little behind the scenes tip. Sometimes people don't read the book and they interview the author. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's annoying. Yes. (laughs) Well, I go through and I underline nuggets that I want to come back and ask you about. And my bone that I need to pick with you is I've underscored the entire book. (laughs) (laughs) I love to see what people underline. So let's set this up for everybody. You wrote a book called The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Now, I am a mom, but my kids are grown. I have Mm -hmm. a bonus daughter who is fully adulting, and my son Mm -hmm. is at university. So I do not have small children running around, although I do have a couple of nephews and a niece, (laughs) and they are feral wild animals. However, I believe that this is not only a book for parents of children of any age, as far as I'm concerned or caretakers of people of any age and a manual for those who might one day join the ranks. But truly, there are so many lessons within your work that just speak, in my opinion, to the human condition and the gift of failure. Today, we're couching our conversation in parenting terms, but I would encourage the listeners to listen for universal truths as well. Yeah, there, most of the most of the stuff in here is, you know, directed at parents and directed at learning how kids learn, but it's how we all learn. I mean, the learning stuff in here is absolutely universal. I learned so much. I changed things I do in my own life because of the research I did for this book. Yes, it changed me as a parent. Yes, it changed me as a teacher, but just as an individual in terms of how I think about uh, my goals and and the way I learn and the way I struggle through things has really changed. What inspired you to write The Gift of Failure? So I was teaching middle school at the time and I love middle school kids. I just love them. And I was getting increasingly annoyed with their parents. Um, And I was on this sort of very high horse about the whole thing because I'm like, ooh, the noble teacher. I'm, you know, trying to teach your kids. It's all about learning for me. And, you know, the parents were undermining all of these learning opportunities because of all of the rescuing and all of the bringing the homework to school and all of that sort of stuff. Luckily for me and embarrassingly for me, I was brought up short by the fact that uh, the sudden realization that I was doing the same thing to my own kids. And I had this sort of semi-helpless at the time, nine-year-old and a 15-year-old. Nine-year-old couldn't tie his own shoes. Totally my fault. I did that. I taught him to not be able to tie his own shoes, to feel helpless about the fact that he couldn't tie his own shoes. So, you know, it was urgent for me as a teacher because I suspected that something about this overparenting thing was messing with not just the kid's motivation, my student's motivation, but 
they're learning, but I didn't, I didn't know what the research said about that connection, but then it became really urgent because it was about my own kids as well. And I, you know, it was humiliating to figure that out, but it, um, but it changed a lot about how I parented my own kids as well. Oh, I have to share a story because I talk a big game, oh, please. Jessica, yes. but <laughs> I, had, I inherited my daughter when she was 14. Okay. So there was a lot I didn't learn. And then my son had him since birth and <laughs> I took him to Montessori as it turns out. And it was, I want to say he was four or five ish. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was ambulatory and had been for some time and I'm in Montessori and I'm helping him put his little coat on and yeah. I'm helping him zip it up. And it's so funny because one of the teachers very kindly sort of touched me on the mm -hmm. shoulder as you do uh, when you're trying to talk some sense into somebody in a calm, <laughs> calm, non-defensive way. And she was like, um, Ella, I believe your child could probably put his own coat on if you gave him the opportunity. And I was like, what? And, and I thought, <laughs> you know, of course, immediately your defenses go up, but Fortunately, right. that was a nanosecond response yeah. because I just thought I, I didn't get the memo the day yeah. he became autonomous. And yeah. I don't, I like, I was so grateful to her. I was like, I'd be doing this when he was 11 years old if he didn't tell me that. One kindergarten teacher, I, well, I talked to, I interviewed so many teachers for this book and I talk, was talking to one kindergarten teacher and I said, what would you like parents to know that their kids can do that they don't think their kids can do? And the kindergarten teacher just looked at me and she was like, everything because she said you don't think we snap up all of those snowsuits and where i'm in vermont so snowsuits boots you know all the nightmare snowsuiting and booting up that everyone has to do for recess she's like you don't think we'd never get outside if they didn't do that themselves or do it for each other and she's like we have the kid who's good at snaps and that kid helps the other kids and we have the other kid that's good at laces and that kid helps the other kids and they figure it all out and yeah I got a lot of messages like that from kindergarten and preschool teachers that and about the voice that kids do like there's this voice, um, this helpless, you know, a baby voice that kids do when the parent drops them off and the teacher's like, and then it switches because the teacher says we use our big kid voice here at school. And then the minute the parent comes at the end of the day, they switch right back into baby voice. So she's, they said it's just amazing to watch. Well, let's get some terms on the table. What does the psychiatric term enmeshment mean? And why are we parenting this way, Jessica? <laughs> Mainly, so enmeshment just means that we're emotionally over-involved in each other's failures and successes for a really simplistic way to put it. And essentially it means that uh, we as parents, you know, we don't get graded on our parenting, right? And I'm, you know, please just tell me, give me a grade so that I can aim really well for that highest grade and I'll get there. But I don't get that with my kids, right? So we need something in order to figure out how we're doing as parents. And unfortunately, we tend to use our kids as proxies, our, you know, their, their accomplishments, their failures, we take those very personally as our own. The thing is that's so unfair to do, not only to us, because our their failures and their successes aren't necessarily our accomplishments or failures, but also it's so unfair to do to them because then we're co-opting their successes and taking that as their own, you know, this seems very generational to me, Jessica, because for those of us who were raised in the 70s and 80s, that's that's in the 20th century, folks, in case you're keeping track. <laughs> My parents were not helicoptering. My parents were no. shutting the front door and saying, see you at dinner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, a couple of things happened. And, you know, if you look at over time, the simple answer is we're having kids after 
more school, more, more time at work, more time at school, we're sort of more tuned into those sort of extrinsic motivators and the tools that we use at work, like, you know, the Excel spreadsheets and the, you know, that kind of stuff. And so that's why we have parents who, you know, have the food in, poop out sort of spreadsheets going on. But the other thing is that, you know, we are at this unique period in time when our generation was the first one that couldn't, well, actually our parents' generation was really the first one that couldn't count on the kids to do better economically than they did. And that's that's something that's been feasible throughout, you know, for a long, long time. So then there's that. Then there's the media. And you talked about the 70s and I'm, I'm 50. So I grew up, I was born in 1970. So we had all that sort of like stranger danger, you know, the false claims against the daycare for abuse and all that sort of like around each corner is someone lurking, waiting to steal your child and all of that kind of stuff. And so the heightened, and then the internet happened and suddenly it's not just the television, the six o'clock news telling us how world dangerous the world is for our children. It's the media and the way um, the internet, the way the news outlets get people to click on articles is by inciting um, emotion. A, a strong emotion is what gets us to click and share and that kind of thing. And so, so it's a couple of different things that sort of came together all at once and uh, we kind of went bananas. And then the college thing too. All of a sudden the media is telling us constantly that um, our kids are never going to get into college. It's impossible. And that's simply not true. It is true for about 50 colleges, but it is not true of the 2,700 colleges, uh, accredited colleges and universities in this country. So yeah, it's a lot of things. It's multifactorial. And I did not, I grew up with parents who sort of, you know, I was out in the woods all day long. Um, they didn't know where I was, and I they never chose my classes for me. Like the I did, my mother was like, well, "People choose classes for their children now." Very different time. You mentioned a couple of things that I want to talk about. So first of all, competitive parenting I think should maybe qualify as an Olympic sport these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we're each other's worst enemy. I mean, Wendy Grolnick coined this phrase called pressured parent syndrome, or I wrote an article about this for the Atlantic called why back to school night made me feel like a bad parent. Because you know, I'm feeling all good about what my kids are up to while I leave them alone to go to back to school night. And I get there and everyone's talking about the tutoring and the private cello lessons and the traveling soccer leagues. And I start to my blood pressure starts to go up and I feel like the worst parent ever because my kids are at home like playing Minecraft and practicing guitar. And I'm feeling proud about that. But at the same time, these parents are like getting their kids ready for college. And it was just, it's really contagious and we do it to each other. A hundred percent. And I think Pinterest parenting, I just thank God every day mm -hmm. that I miss yeah. that wave of Pinterest yeah. parenting. I mean, I can't throw parties that are Pinterest worthy for my small, small <laughs> child. So like I just opted out. But also I think that there, we are seeking to fill a hole that's in us yeah. and seeking praise yeah. and validation from others, which is problematic in and of itself, but also right. extraordinarily human. But not only are we doing that, but we're doing it by proxy through our kids' accomplishment. Like this is a flawed equation. Well, and they know that because when I go speak at schools and I usually will talk to the kids during the day and the teachers in the afternoon and the parents in the evening, I give all the kids my email address and I tell them to email me with the thing they want their parents to know when I talk to them that night, like something that maybe if they hear it from me, they might actually listen. And by far, by far, the number one comment I get is some iteration of, I am not my brother. I am not my sister. I am not you when you were my age. And primarily, I'm not your do-over. So these kids, they understand that 
there are times when we're not parenting them, we're parenting some perception that we have of them and they know it and it really upsets them and it's not fair. One of the things that you touched on that I want to highlight is you pointed out, and this is a generalization, of course, but you pointed mm -hmm. out that the generations just before us and mm -hmm. our generation are more educated than right. previous generations, uh, which right. is great, fabulous, wonderful. But that means thus that we are either leaving careers or balancing careers right. with parenting, but we're applying these skills that we've learned to our parenting. So you were joking about a spreadsheet, but I know that there's real truth in that. Oh, yeah, absolutely we used to get validation or we are still seeking some level of validation for our accomplishments. Again, there's no shame here. This is a very human quality. You say, many of us look to our children to provide the feedback we need in order to feel as if we are doing our jobs well. So their feelings about us is a barometer for our own success. What is right. wrong with that equation? And I'd like to add on to that, that during the pandemic, that has increased to the point and and for other reasons so we feel so out of control right now i mean adults feel so out of control of what's happening in the world imagine how kids feel i mean they've had all of their autonomy stripped away and so for us controlling our kids gives us a sense of oh okay at least i've got something under control during the pandemic that's been exacerbated because we can't control so much i mean i haven't seen my parents in ages and i you know there's so many things that i need to be able to do that i can't do so if i exert more control in my home you know control makes us feel better it, it turns out the research on, on learned helplessness is really clear on this that when we're feeling particularly um stressed and in pain and our tendency is to go helpless but the way we circumvent that the way we sort of deal with that is if we give people more control it makes them feel less helpless so i'm attempting to take all of this control in my home aka over my kids to make myself feel better about the fact that i don't have control out there so that added layer is putting even more stress on kids and putting even more stress on us as parents to to show through our kids through our house through our bookshelves that are behind us through all of these elements that we are killing it as parents and it's been really really hard Hard to put forward this killing it as parents kind of thing, especially lately. And so, you know, we're just grasping at the straws that we can, and our kids are often those straws. And nobody wants to identify as a helicopter parent, right? Well, no. maybe some people do, but I don't right. know them. <laughs> I haven't met them. <laughs> but here's the great backfiring of helicopter parenting. You say that every time we rescue, and I want to talk about that because that's not just helping your kid get into college, right? It can right. be the tiniest things, but every time- Tying their shoes, yeah. Exactly. Every time we rescue, hover, or otherwise save our children from a challenge or a consequence, we send them a clear message that we believe they are unable or unworthy of our faith in them to sort it out themselves. Wow. Well, I think that realization happened with the shoe tying thing that, you know, all the excuses, it's faster if I do it, we're in a rush to get out the door. Um, we might as well buy, buy Velcro shoes so we can just avoid the problem altogether. So my message to him was, eh, I'm not even going to bother with this because I don't think you can do it. He just had avoided it. You know, that was one of those moments where I'm like, all of this is my fault. I did all of this. And that was a big, you know, big moment for me. 
Well, and we're doing it with good intentions, right? Just yeah. the same oh, way because you... we love them. Right. Yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, and most of mostly what I hear is I don't want him to feel frustrated. And there's this fat, fantastic book by Scott Barry Kaufman called Ungifted. And Scott was in the special ed program in school when he was growing up because of a sensory, pro because of a um, auditory processing disorder. And he really wanted to take the honors classes, but his IQ had been measured quite low. And there's, don't get me started on IQ tests. That book is also an explanation of why IQ tests are such um, a problem and such a blunt instrument. And Scott, it got to the point one day where a teacher finally pulled him aside. It was a long story, but a teacher finally pulled him aside and was like, Scott, you know, what are you doing in this special ed class? Because I don't think you belong here. And he was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been saying. And he went down to the payphone, folks for, who are listening, that used to be this box on the wall where you put money in and then you talk on it. I've heard and of it. And he called, I know, he called his mom and he's like, what am I doing in special ed? Um, and it turns out he'd outgrown aspects of his auditory processing disorder. And his mother said, yeah, we know you want to take those harder classes, but we didn't want you to be in those classes and get overwhelmed and feel frustrated, to get frustrated and feel stupid. And that motivation right there, you know, it's, it's so difficult to watch our kids. It's so difficult for me to watch my students be frustrated. I just want to give them the answers. But think about the best teachers you've ever had. They weren't the teachers that just came over and said, oh, you're frustrated. Let me just give you the answer. They're the teachers who lead you to finding the answer yourself. And yet somehow in my brain, that wasn't communicating to the parenting side of my brain. And I was just falling apart whenever my kids got frustrated and just being directive and giving them, okay, sweetie, first do this. Okay, next do this. Okay, next do this. No, no, no. Oh, I'll just do it. That's how, that's what was happening with my parenting. Well, and yet research has shown time and time again that children whose parents don't allow them to fail are less engaged, less yeah. motivated, less enthusiastic, and yeah. ultimately less successful than children whose parents support their autonomy. So again, it is worth it to override our natural tendencies if truly our motivation is to create autonomous, fulfilled, dare I say, even happy children. Well, and the reason that is the case is that when our kids can't be frustrated, they tend to, um, and this is all Wendy Grolnick's research, they tend to give up when faced with a challenging task, a task that's just beyond their ability level. And, and kids who have autonomy, who are uh, kids who have autonomy supportive parents, parents who sort of let kids mess around and do it their way and control the details, those kids are more likely to be able to finish those tasks. And the problem is, is that as a teacher, one of the most powerful tools I have, it's an incredible incredibly effective tool and it's called desirable difficulties, which means I have to give my students tasks that are a little bit difficult for them, a little bit frustrating because it's through parsing those things and figuring it out and, and turning it over in their minds and trying it from different angles that they learn the most. So think about that for a second. Who can learn from desirable difficulties? Not kids who can't complete the task and give up, but it's the kids who sort of have the emotional wherewithal to, to experience frustration and not give up and finish the task. So think a little bit about what's happening every single time you rescue your kid. You're reinforcing their inability to feel frustrated. You're saving them from those feelings of frustration and not sort of tempering that emotion, letting them feel it and sort of be comfortable with it. And you're actually undermining their ability to learn in the long run. Well, because the world very obviously is not going to protect them. Therefore, you're not equipping yeah. them with life in the real world. But right. easy to say, harder right. to do. So hard to do. 
even saying helicopter parenting, you know, it's not, it, it sounds, you know, like we're always there for them. We're persistent, yeah. we're hovering. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but in the way that I looked at this is I was like, hmm, if we called it by a different name, it feels different. And that is <laughs> yeah. controlling parenting. So what does controlling parenting look like? I don't even like a controlling parenting irks me too, because I, so my job as a teacher, and that's what I do when I'm out speaking is to help teach people new concepts and help them understand why and why I'm explaining things to them and how things work. And people won't listen to me if I piss them off. I can poke a little bit, but I can't get them really angry. And the word controlling gets my defenses up. So actually the best word for it really is directive because directive means that you're giving a lot of directions so that you're you're always telling, giving kids the next step. Okay, first do this, next do that, next do that. No, 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 don't ask any questions, just do it this way. And controlling is a thing too, but in a different sense because controlling parents not only are highly directive, they also tend to do a lot more surveillance, that kind of thing. And all of those things undermine kids' motivation to stick with things over the stick with tasks over the long term so not only are and, and then there's other problems um kids of parents who are really controlling tend to lie to their parents more often because kids need their own they they're individuating especially during adolescence and they need space that's all theirs they need the space that they control and if the parent won't give that to them by giving them a little more control over their lives kids will just take it by deception and when i talk to kids about stupid lies like they tell their parents they're at the coffee shop when they're actually at the deli like who cares and the kids say because i need something that's mine i just if it, i just need a little space and i'll lie to get it um and so frankly from my perspective i would like my kids to be able to learn really well i would like my kids to be um have the sense of self-efficacy meaning like that it, that they feel like they can go out into the world and make decisions that will change things. I want my kids to be honest with me. And all of those things come from being an autonomy supportive parent and a more trusting parent and a parent who gives their kids some credit for having um, good judgment and a sense of competence. Um, so that if those are my goals, then over parenting, being a directive parent, being a controlling parent, that is, it, it goes against my very goals. That is very good clarity. And truthfully, at the end of the day, parenting isn't for us right <laughs> at the end Except of the day it used to be called child rearing it was child centered now we call it parenting so it's parent centered how weird is that right it's about rearing children it's not about the parents it's not parenting it's child rearing right so anyway that that interesting turn of phrase happened somewhere in the middle of the last century well, and my joke is if you parent correctly or to the, you know, if you parent optimally, let's say, then it breaks your heart because your whole goal right. is to launch an autonomous human. Right. <laughs> so if you do it well, you get your heart broken. That's yeah. just how parenting works. <laughs> we are trying to put ourselves out of a job. We want to get them to the point where they don't need us anymore. We want to get them to the point where when they do need us, it's a rare and precious thing. And we get to really revel in that. Like, like when our kids come to us, even as adults and say, I need advice, I don't know what to do, I'm having problems in my relationship, that's a moment where you can be, you know, a true sort of really be there in a in a generous way for your kid as opposed to the selfish way we're there often for our kids, which is to take control of the thing they're doing and make it the way we want it to be. Um, that's not what kids need from us. Over and over and over again, I have a friend who's a middle school counselor and she talks all the time about the fact that what kids need, what 
kids want is not necessarily for us to fix the problem. It's for us to listen to their problem and be a sounding board. And as a teacher, I know that when a kid puts their hand up in class and they're like, Miss Lee, Miss Lee, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. But what often happens is I go there and I stand there and I say, what's the problem? Tell me about it. And they'll start to explain what they don't understand. And in the middle of telling me what they don't understand, they're like, oh, never mind, go away, go away. And that's often what kids need from us is not the answer, but just to be there and listen to them while they puzzle it through or talk it through. That is how, how we have to sort of come to kids and realize that sometimes they just want to be heard. Well, Jessica, I am in my 40s and, and at mm -hmm. no, I am now friends with my parents as individuals, as mm -hmm. autonomous humans. Yeah. At no point in my childhood, in my adolescence, in my teen years, or even in my early 20s, did I ever use the word friend to describe my no, parents. No, no <laughs> not ever. Not our job, yeah. But our generation seems to have maybe gotten something lost in translation, and I'm not trying to just poop all over our generation, mm -hmm. but you say that children who like their parents all the time, or even a majority of the time, don't respond to accountability so well because they're not mm -hmm. accustomed to being corrected when they misbehave right. or are right. called on for their mistakes, or even, and this one's alarming, or even empathetic. They are, when they are mm -hmm. asked to consider the needs of other people, that is not coming to them quite as easily because they are quite used to getting things their own way and the world is centered around them. What is wrong with wanting to be friends with your child? Well, there's two, uh, there's a common misconception. When I talk about being an autonomy supportive parent, I'm not talking about, you know, hey kid, go have, go learn stuff. I'll, I'm gonna go live my life over here and you can do whatever you want. That's called permissive parenting. That's sort of the no rules, laissez-faire parenting. And that is not what I'm talking about. In fact, once I became an autonomy supportive parent, what I had to do was create really clear expectations for my kids because it was going to be up to them to meet those expectations expectations in the way they saw fit. Of course, they were going to screw it up and I was going to be there to support them, you know, and help them come up with better solutions. But unless my expectations were really clear and unless we followed through with logical consequences when they didn't meet those expectations, then it's all for naught and there's no, there's no consequences. There's no, you know, so I actually think I was a much more strict parent when I started stepping back and giving my kids more autonomy simply because it was even more important that I allow them to experience the logical consequences of their mistakes. And so, for example, when I stepped back and said, I can't be in control of your schoolwork, that has to be your job, right? So when my kid was nine, 10, and he started really being in control of all aspects of his homework, my, I had to make really clear expectations. You know, you will bring your homework home, meaning AKA you have to put it in your backpack. I, first we said, first I said, you will do your homework. I thought that was like clear enough, but no, no, no. You will put the homework in your backpack. You will take the homework out of your backpack. You will do the homework to the best of your ability. You will put the homework back in your backpack. And then when you get to school, you will take it back out of your backpack and you will give it to the person who needs to evaluate the, that homework. I came to find out, I thought my kid had not been doing his homework. It turns out it was only the put it in the backpack and take it out of the backpack part that hadn't been happening. But I wouldn't have known that if we hadn't gone through this exercise. And then if homework doesn't get done, I'm not going to take away electronics. I'm not going to, you know, put you in your room without your dinner because those for kids, especially who don't have fully formed frontal lobes, those are not logical consequences. They don't make any sense to them. But if your homework is not getting done, then you will be in charge of arranging and running 
the conference where your teacher and I and you all sit down together so that you can come up with solutions for how you'll remember to put your homework in, in your backpack and take it out of your backpack. We'll be there to support you, but you're going to have to be there to create the solutions. And I can tell you right now, your kid would much rather have their electronics taken away than have to go to a conference with you and their teacher where you brainstorm about how your kid can do better. That's a logical consequence though, right? And that's how it's gonna work with your boss. You screw up at work, you don't like have your electronics taken away. You have to go actually talk to your boss and in a mature way and learn how to have a mature conversation about what you did wrong and own it and learn how to do better next time. That's the kind of kid I wanna raise, not the kind of kid who you know loses their electronics when they screw up. Well, and let's be honest, it doesn't feel great to punish our kids or to correct them in some context. Like, you know, it, it, you've had a hard day. Maybe you've been working all day. Maybe you're under some stress. Maybe you haven't spent as much time with your children as you mm -hmm. wanted. So it just feels harder, Jessica, right? To be yeah. the tough parent. What do you yeah. say to the person who responds that way? Well, and I wouldn't even say the tough parent. There is some thinking that goes into how we parent. And for me anyway, it's kind of fun sometimes. So picture this. I fly a lot with my kids because I travel a lot for speaking and it's been a great opportunity to take the kids with me sometimes and get to do some adventuring and blah, blah, blah. I realized what I was essentially doing was dragging my kids through the airport by the arm and just sort of holding all the tickets, holding all the IDs, holding, doing everything, deciding how everything was going to work. So one time when we were traveling, we essentially got to the airport and I said, okay, what do we do now? I had allotted extra time on purpose. And the idea was one of these kids is going to have to fly on his own at some point. And where exactly is he going to learn this? If not from me? And like, when do you need to have your ID out? When do you not? And by the way, people behind you in line now with all the security stuff, people behind you in line are like pissed off if you're not ready when you're supposed to be ready. So helping them through that first time they go through the airport, that was a huge learning curve and it did take a while or planning ahead to say, you know, let's, instead of having to rush out the door and doing the shoes at the tying the shoes at the last minute, how about this afternoon we take a few minutes and we have a snack and we just really tackle this shoe thing because I totally think you can do it. I just think we need a snack and we need to do it when we're not tired and have a moment. So yeah, it does take some planning. Does it take a little more time sometimes to come up with solutions and and ways around things that just aren't working because how was your day at school was not working as a communication measure with my kid because fine was all i ever got but if i go out of my way to create a mode of communication that sort of is a way that they're open to then you know it, it'll work better so yes it does take a little bit more work but think about it this way it takes more work on the front end so that airport thing or um, knowing how to load the dishwasher or knowing how to do the laundry. If you get that down, yes, it takes a lot of time at the moment, but then you have a kid who can do laundry. And I can tell you the time savings later on is massive. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're raising a human to go out in the world and interact with other humans. Okay, so last sort of devil's advocate question. I'm going to use an analogy from the Tour de France. So the Tour de France, okay. there was a big doping scandal years ago. Right. And basically, at the end of the day, the argument was, look, I'm not, I'm not a fan of doping either. But when everyone else is doping, right. <laughs> if you aren't doing it, you can't compete. Right. And That's so, a great analogy. Yeah. Isn't it? Because, because this is what happens. You look right. around in the world and listen my son is in his first year at college and 
I think that what I was supposed to do was spend his entire high school career obsessing about where mm-hmm. he was going to go, yeah. whether he was going to get accepted, whether it was going right. to be a school I could brag about, you know, how many advanced college credits he was going to get. Right. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And if you believe the media, parents will sell their absolute soul to make all right. of those ha- things. I opted out. And, and the reason I opted out is not because I'm a noble saint. The reason I opted out is because I had a child who taught me at an extremely young age that he was going to ignore every single significant milestone and do things his own way. Right. (laughs) So if I were clinging to milestone charts, I would have been dead a long, long time ago. So he taught me that lesson very early on. And no, he did not know how to speak Japanese when he was three. And yes, he made his bed. Let's get our priorities straight. Well, and there's a whole entire chapter, by the way, in Gift to Failure about college and all the college stuff. And you would not believe the number of times that parents have come to me talking about our college applications and our college essay. It's it's bananas. But I love your analogy because what what has happened more than once is when I leave a speaking engagement, there are often a couple of parents who don't want to speak to me in front of other parents and says, like, follow me to my car. And uh, this one parent will will follow me to my car. And one of the things she said to me was, um, you know, I'm fully in. I I get it. I need to get my give my kids more autonomy. They're totally incompetent, blah, blah, blah. I did that. But I can't be the first one to do it because if I'm the first one to do it, then I'm the negligent parent. I'm the one the teachers think aren't do isn't doing my job what do you mean i'm not allowed to check the the parent portal for school and um as a parent i have to go and i'm speaking for myself now every year at school i have to explain to all of my kids teachers that i don't use the parent portal because i would rather talk to my kid about what's going on at school he uses the portal so he can get the information he needs but i don't do that so if something is circling the drain, if my son is about to fail out of school, I need, here's the best way to get in touch with me. It's weird to me that I have to be the outlier who has to let the parent, let the school know, <clears throat> excuse me, that I'm not refreshing the parent portal every 15 minutes to see what my kids' grades are. So I totally get that instinct. If you can go to the teacher and you can say, look, we are on the same team here. What I care about is the learning. To that end, I trust you as a professional to do your job and to and to communicate with me. And here's the best way to get in touch with me. And I'm going to be encouraging my kid to be the main, main mode of communication between school and home. And I would love any support you can give me in that. And, you know, teachers, number one, will like send you thank you notes for that. But it's this incredible it sets up a really great relationship between home and school because you're communicating to the school that you trust them and they letting them know sort of what to expect from you. So it's, it is tough to be the first one, but what often happens is the first one finds other parents who are thinking the same way. And uh, those first ones sort of stick together. And then those, they sort of reinforce each other. And and keep your hands off those college essays, by the way, because we teachers and those admissions people, I get a whiff of the parent stink on an essay from a mile away. Like, it's amazing how easy it is. Um, I was tutoring a kid one time and I could pick out the sentences that he did not write. It's so easy. So just keep your hands off their college essays. It might not come naturally. We might want to rescue. We might want to hover. We might want to save and we might want to spare. But at the end of the day, we are doing our children no favors. And I just thank you for your beautiful book, The Gift of Failure, because you carry us through this lesson in a gentle way. And it doesn't it doesn't get one's hackles up, <laughs> but well, it really I mean, helps you hold a mirror up. Between this and the new book about substance abuse, you know, I have to talk about 
scary things like our kids risk for substance abuse. And the last thing I want to do is make parents feel bad. Like there's one more thing that we have to do in order to be good parents. What I want to do is empower parents with information about how kids learn, what works, what doesn't work, and then say, here you go. Here's the new information. Now model for your kid the experience of maybe having done something wrong, learning how to do it better, and going forward with new, better information. If we really, really want to do that, that's you know the very best way to model for our kids that we learn from our mistakes. Jessica Leahy, thank you so much. I will share this book and congratulations on your new book, The Addiction Inoculation. I will link to both in the episode notes for this show. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or open the show notes for this episode and get all the links at onairella.com. There's no whip. It's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. And thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.